0: As you're taking your seats, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. There are a few words that elicit um, a number of different responses in our hearts when we hear them, a variety of different responses. For example, uh, what do you think of, what happens in your heart when you hear the word change? For some of you, you love the concept of change, you thrive on change and you hear the word change and you're just fired up and you're like, yes, I love change, I need change, it fuels me, it drives me. For others of you, you hear the word change and there is instantly, right now, even building an unsettling in your heart. There is fear and anxiety and worry and you dread the thought of change and you're asking like, why do we need to change? Everything seems great. Some of you are just indifferent towards change. You're like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter to me. I'm somewhat apathetic to change, but if it comes, it's not a big deal. Change is at the very heart of the Christian life. It is at the very heart of the Christian experience. In fact, the word conversion, it has in it the idea of change. It comes from a Latin word that means to turn around, to change directions. And we're familiar with the idea of the word conversion. We use it in a number of different contexts. Uh, For example, we convert currency uh, from one currency to another. Uh, We convert measurements, and I would suggest to you it's a good thing if you're driving to the U.S. to convert the speed limit. It can be problematic if you don't. We're familiar with the concept of a converter or a remote control that we use to change the channel. And at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is to experience a radical change in our lives. That is what we've seen happen in Acts chapter 9 to this man named Saul who would be so radically changed that he would be given a new name and become the Apostle Paul. We saw last week the radical conversion story. And at its heart, it is the transformation of a man. It is an utter and total, complete change in the direction, both of figuratively speaking, but, both, but also literally. He was walking along the road to Damascus with the intent and the purpose of persecuting the church. And God so radically gripped him that it changed the very direction of this man's life. And it all began with an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is where all true change in the Christian life flows from. A vision that changed him on the spot. But as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we know that that vision, that encounter with Jesus Christ, was the thing that compelled him to continue to experience ever-increasing change in his life. Now in the moment of his conversion, what we looked at last week, we see fundamentally and and primarily a change in his position. A change in his position and his standing before God. He was once an enemy of God, he has been made a friend of God. He was once a sinner and now he is declared a saint. He was once filthy and stained by his sin and by the grace of God he has washed and cleansed him. He once had no righteousness of his own, but in an instant before God, he is credited with the very righteous life of Jesus Christ. In that moment, his standing before God is utterly changed. In fact, the Bible calls this a new birth. He is a new man. And when you are changed positionally before God, God's intent is to continue to change you. If you just think of the word transformation, we find it all throughout the New Testament. We find it in the writings of Paul himself. He is consumed with this concept of being transformed. Second Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that we all, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of Jesus Christ being transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we continue to gaze upon Jesus Christ, the idea is that God is changing us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verses one and two that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is the call in the Christian life. It is a call to be changed. With every positional change, There is to also be a practical change in our lifestyle. And you see, with this positional change, God recreates our nature. He takes that sin-cursed nature that is enslaved to sin, and he releases it from bondage. He creates life in us through Jesus Christ, and he gives us a new nature, a new nature that has new desires, new dispositions that long for God, that long to love him, that long to know more of him, and that long to serve him. And if that change is taking place in a life, it will inevitably lead to a practical change in the way we live. In fact, you could say it like this, that practical change in a Christian's life is the evidence that there has been a positional change in the Christian life. It is, in fact, the evidence of true conversion. There is continued change, what we call sanctification, in the Christian life. But one of the things that we need to understand in the Christian life is that continual change is costly. In fact, somebody has once written this, that there are three stages that every Christian goes through in their Christian life and in Christian growth. First, it is easy, then it is hard, and then it is impossible. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? At the beginning of your walk with God, the changes are so drastic and so radical and it feels very easy. It feels, in one sense, simple, and and it seems like this is gonna be the norm in the Christian life, but very quickly, as we walk down that road of Christian living, we realize that the change becomes increasingly more difficult. It has to be fought for to ever-increasing degrees, and at, at times in our Christian life, it feels utterly and completely impossible. Sometimes, and especially as we continue to change, we're more and more aware of our need to change We see our sin in greater degrees, and at times it feels like we're never going to change. But by the grace of God, though change is costly, he tells us it is possible, and in fact, he calls us to change. We see that in the life and the experience of the Apostle Paul as he has been positionally changed. We now see that there are practical changes, and one of the things we can draw from this section of Scripture is that initially, especially, the change is radical It is a radical, drastic change that is visible, it is identifiable, it is observable, and that is in one sense the way that God has designed it to be. If we have truly been changed, it will be seen in our life. We pick up at verse 19, halfway through. Saul has just been, if you remember, uh, he's he's been met with Ananias as he's been blinded by the vision he saw of Jesus. He's heard the words of Jesus. He goes back with Ananias to Damascus. Ananias lays hands on him, and Saul regains his sight. He is filled with the Spirit. He had been fasting for three days, and now he rises. He is baptized. He's taking in food, and he's strengthened. And verse 19 says this, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The change is radical in the life of the Apostle Paul. His position before God is radically altered, but practically we see an entirely different man. For some days, is the way that verse 19b begins, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Paul is being refreshed by spiritual fellowship. Remember, he spent three days not eating or drinking with a penitent heart before the Lord, confessing his sin. I'm sure praying that God would change him, would change the way he lived, would help him in this new call that God had given him to go and reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here he is spending time with the brothers and sisters in Christ in Damascus. He's being refreshed and encouraged. He's likely being instructed and discipled. People are investing in him, pouring their heart and soul into him. Flowing right out of that, you'll notice verse 20 paints this drastic picture so powerfully. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is when you look at his life, he is a man who is just completely filled with a sense of urgency when it comes to the things of Jesus Christ. I mean, you cannot shut this guy up. You can't slow this guy down. Everywhere he goes, he has to speak about Jesus Christ. And it's true at the beginning of his conversion as well as at the end of his life. Paul immediately launches into his preaching ministry in the synagogues. He goes out and he begins to tell people that Jesus is the son of God. And you know the truth is this, that when you have been transformed by the grace of God, you cannot but help speak of the grace of God. That's especially true. Don't we we see this in our own lives? That's especially true at the moment of our conversion. There is, and we notice this with new believers, you ever see this? There there is a fire and a zeal in new believers that is so contagious, I mean, it's so evident, I mean, they've just been ripped out of a life of sin, they've just experienced the grace of God in such a powerful and real way, and this is especially true if you've lived a life and been saved later on in your life, it's true if you've kind of had that life and you see this radical change. And a new believer, it's hard to shut them up when it comes to talking about Jesus Christ, But what's so sad is that oftentimes, as we progress in our Christian life, that zeal begins to diminish, doesn't it? You ever wonder why that's the case? You know, why we we were like that back then when we first experienced God's grace? I think it has everything to do with with knowing what God has done and who we really were. You see, that's exactly, I think, what we see in the heart of this man's soul, And Saul never loses his zeal because he never moves past the wonder of God's grace in salvation. He is always bringing himself back to this moment where God saw fit to reach down and to pluck him out of his life of sin. He talks about it constantly. He's constantly reminding us that he was the chief of sinners, that he was someone who was lost and living in his own righteousness and that God in his merciful and kind grace saw him and came after him him. And I think our problem is that so often we move past that in our lives, don't we? We we move past the grace of God and the wonder of his grace and so we lose the zeal that is intended to characterize our lives. Not Saul, he never moved past the wonder and awe of God's great grace, instead he moved deeper into it. It became for him a consuming and a compelling, maturing zeal that only got better as he aged. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He says this, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, Paul, he looks at his life and he says, Do you not know who I was, and do you not see the grace that God has just showered upon me? I mean, I am under compulsion. Necessity is laid upon me, and I feel the weight of having to preach this great grace in God's salvation because of what he's done and what he's called me to, that woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I mean, he just cannot not preach the gospel. It has consumed his entire life. He knew why God had chosen him. He knew that God had changed him, and it compelled him. I think of Jeremiah, who said that it was when he kept it in, the, the word speaking the truth, it was like a fire in his bones that was shut up, and it was just ready to burst forward. And listen, Christian, I believe this is how we as Christians ought to live. We are not to lose the zeal for the truth of Jesus Christ. And that happens only when we lose the wonder and awe of his amazing grace that we have experienced. He calls us back. He calls us to hang tight to that grace that we experienced. Now, now, this is utterly amazing. Here is Saul, freshly converted, and he's out preaching. He's walking around to different, you know, just imagine, he's going church to church to church, all these synagogues, and he's preaching about Jesus Christ. And, and that's a little bit confusing. like, wait a second here, he didn't go to seminary. What gives him to write? How, who does he think he is? This guy has no training, and he's been readied for this. And I would say that Paul is not the average convert, is he? <laughs> I mean Saul, think about it. Saul is a man who is so unique. He had studied under the greatest rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. He was at the top of the top in his Hebrew school. And he was graduating summa cum laude. And this guy, he he was so brilliant. He was so incredibly saturated with the scriptures. And so when the spirit of God opened his eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ, all of that Old Testament truth that he had been saturating himself with was all of a sudden brought to light. I mean, it was like the light switch flipped on and in light of Jesus Christ, everything he had been studying for his entire life began to make sense for the first time. He had no need to download all of this new information. He simply had to process the old information in light of the news of Jesus Christ. It all made sense so quickly for him. And instantly his heart was lit on fire to proclaim the truth. And you notice how simple his message is? And this is, this is in some sense instructive for us. Do you notice what it says there? It says he went to the synagogue saying he is the son of God. I mean, in that context, the Jewish context, that was the very thing they rejected about Jesus. That was, after all, what Saul himself had rejected, that Jesus was the son of God. This is a title that exclaims not only his messiahship, but his deity. I mean, He is walking into synagogues and he's saying, hey, remember this man Jesus who we thought was a sham. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the king that we were waiting for. He claimed to be God himself. We killed him. Remember that? We rejected him. We kicked him to the curb. Well, guess what? The man we killed has risen from the grave. He's conquered sin and death. He is actually the Messiah because he is God himself. He went in and proclaimed and you've got to Believed that he went and proclaimed that this man only, only this man could save sinners from their sins. Only this man could give the hope of eternal life. Here he is proclaiming these powerful truths. And the scriptures tell us this. Look at this verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed. They were just astounded and bewildered because of the transformation that had happened. The change was so radical. Look at what they say. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? I mean, he was against all of this, and now, look at now he's proclaiming this is the truth. He came here with the purpose of arresting Christians who claim to follow this person, Jesus Christ, and now we find him proclaiming him He was sent with letters from the chief priest giving him permission and authority to arrest people and now we see him proclaiming that Jesus Christ can release us from their captivity to sin. And the picture here is so utterly radical. Have you ever ever taken a before and after photo? Some of you won't admit it publicly and I understand that, that's fair. You know, but if you, you've ever done a before and after photo, you're like, man, I really got to get myself in shape. What do you do for some motivation? Like, I'm going to take a picture of where I'm at now, and then later down the road, I'm going to take a, a picture of, of where I'm at. And what's the intent in that? Well, the hope is, is that when you look at the after picture, it looks very different than the before picture, right? Because if it doesn't, it's depressing. And how many of us have been there? right? Like, oh, this is terrible. Well, let's take it away from it. This is cutting too deep. Let me just, have you ever done a before and after picture of a home, okay? It's less personal, less, you know, I can breathe a bit. Have you ever, you know, you've seen those, maybe you've been on those websites and they're showing a before picture of a, of a home or a room that's been renovated. Here's the before and here's the after. And you look at the picture and it's so radically different. It doesn't even look like the same place, right? Well, why is that? Well, that's because somebody went in and they gutted the old place, right? They, they stripped away all of the old junk. The filthiness is utterly ripped out, and they brought in a whole new set of stuff, and they built up a place to make it look completely different, new, refreshed. Well, that's what's happened to Saul, and that's what happens to every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, God goes in and he rips away the old, the old, dead, sin-stained person and he renovates it, completely changes it by his grace and he makes something new and beautiful and that new and beautiful thing is powerfully displaying God's great grace. Saul is transformed. He is changed from a persecutor of Jesus Christ himself to a proclaimer of Jesus Christ himself and it's so shocking people don't know what to do with it. Is this the same guy? He doesn't look the same. Are you sure we haven't confused him with somebody else? Let me ask you this this morning. What does your before and after photos look like? Do they look different? At the beginning of the Christian life it can be easier to see the changes, can't it? I mean, For some of us, especially if you've, again, you've come out of a life of sin, maybe you're saved later on in your life, and you can look at your past life, and you know what you were living in, you know the filth of your sin, you see the despicable nature of your heart, you knew that you were pursuing your own glory, your own pleasures, and you were an affront to the almighty God of the universe, and you can see this so vividly, and you know that when God saved you, the whole disposition of your life was radically altered, so much so that if you compared the two, the pictures look like like this man Saul they're so different for others of us and like myself included maybe if you grew up in the church or you grew up in a home where there was you know it was fairly moral and and you learned to do the right things and there's nothing wrong with that by the way and you didn't live a, a really outwardly rebellious life it can be harder maybe to see that radical change that God has produced in your life but if you inspect it carefully you should be able to see something different you should be able to see this at least And progressively more so, I was once living for me. The desires of my heart were not to please God, they were to please me. And even in the good works I did, and the morality that I uh, exhibited externally, it wasn't done for God, I wanted nothing to do with God, but then God changed me. He opened my eyes, and he showed me how much he loved me, and he showered me with his grace. And now, now I, I obey, and, and I do the right things, not out of duty, and not because I want to make myself look better, because I want to, I want to please my God. I want to serve my God. I, I do this as an expression of love for my God because I see what he's done for me. He's rescued me. He's redeemed me. He set me free from a life of sin. He set me free from a life of slavery to it. He set me free from the penalty of sin. I just want to challenge you this morning though if you're looking at your life you should be able to see a difference between the before and after picture. Every one of us if we're in Christ has had that positional change. We were lost and now we're found. We were slaves and now we're free. We're blind and now we're see. We were condemned and now we are forgiven. We were sinners and now we're saints. We were an enemy and he's made us his friend. But God calls us to an increasing degree of change, and so when you look at your life, God wants you to see this, that there is a before picture, before you knew him, and there is an after picture, you know, maybe when you initially got saved, but every every year, every five years, as you're taking snapshots of yourself, and I hope you do this, he wants you to see, do I look different even from that initial after photo, and is there an increasing change as I look at my life? And for some of us, it's very discouraging to try and look at the change, and we, we don't think we can see the change, and that's because we're, we're so focused, we're getting in too close, and God says, hold on a second, zoom out, stop looking day to day to day to day, because if you do that, you're not gonna see the change, right? We never see the change right up front, but if you zoom out and you look year over year, decade over decade, is there a change in your life? Do you look more like Jesus, or perhaps look at your heart, do you love Jesus more? Paul's change was radical and I love that he goes forward and he begins to preach look at notice this Paul had Paul had a testimony like no other right Paul had a testimony like no other one of the things I think is so sweet here is that he does not go and preach his testimony he does not go and preach primarily his radical change he goes and he preaches the God the radical God who radically changed him He preaches Christ. Listen, your testimony is valuable and it is sweet and it is important and it is something that should compel you to live for Jesus Christ, but listen, it is not what saves sinners. It is not what changes anybody. Only the power of Jesus Christ saves sinners, amen? That is what we preach. The most radical change should be in who you live for and who you proclaim. Change is radical. We see in the life of Saul here, though, that change is also intentional. And while it appears that it was easy at the beginning for Saul, one of the things we need to see is that change was very intentional and progressively more so throughout his life. Saul was not yet ready for frontline ministry. The great Apostle Paul that we all know and love and read and are fed by was not yet this great Apostle Paul. In fact, the Lord had a long program of preparation in store for him. Longer than he or we would have ever imagined. Saul's impressive abilities and his background, even combined with his dramatic conversion experience, did not qualify him for leadership. Yes, he went out preaching, And every believer, every one of us who has been saved, even the moment we are saved, we have something we can share with the world, right? We have hope. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. But Paul himself would later write in one of his epistles and say that this, that you don't put a new convert into a position of leadership. It sets him up for failure. The devil loves that because he's not strong and stable enough. And here we see Saul who is not yet ready for spiritual leadership. God still had some work to do in him to get him ready for what lay ahead. And the last half of Acts chapter 9 shows us how God prepared Saul for service and really what it does is it illustrates for us three requirements for true and lasting change in our lives. So requirement number one, as, as you think of change being intentional, think of it like this, it requires resolve. It requires a resolve, a commitment, a diligence, An unwavering pursuit. The first step, this idea of resolve, is found between, yes, you heard that right, Acts 9, 22 and 23. There is, if you notice, a little bit of a gap. I want you to see this here. So verse 22 says, But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He's growing in his ability to Proclaim the gospel and defend Jesus Christ and nobody can respond. And then it says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews had plotted to kill him. So his ministry is ongoing and yet what we see here is that many days have passed. There is a gap here between verses 22 and 23 and in fact what we know is this, according to scripture as you line the events of scripture up, this is a three year gap in the life of the apostle Paul. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, just let that sit for a second. Remember how we, we, we looked at how, the reality that Paul never lost sight of God's grace in his salvation. This is years later. Look at how he begins this when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, this is the compelling motivation of his heart. This is what he lives for. When he who did that was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, into a desert region, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. You see, there's a three-year gap here where Saul goes away to Arabia. It's a desert location. And there is some mystery, this, this three years is shrouded in mystery, we don't entirely know what happened and Paul doesn't explicitly give us the outline of everything he did and everything that was happening there but I believe that this is what was happening for sure. Here is Saul, he's away preparing for his future ministry. He's reading and learning and being discipled and being trained. It is here where he's doing ministry with other people. It is here where God is revealing, Jesus is revealing visions to him. Remember 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul says that he was brought up into the third heavens where he saw a vision from Jesus Christ and things were uttered to him that he could not even speak Remember, this is the same man who would write the vast majority of the New Testament. This is the one who would receive direct revelation from God himself. And I believe that a large portion of that was happening right here in this three-year period as God was preparing him for his future ministry. You see, like Moses, Saul apparently spent time in the wilderness before coming full force into his service for God. Change takes time. So it requires great resolve. We don't like that, do we? I mean, fundamentally, most of us struggle with this concept of patience and taking time. I mean, we, we live in a culture that says we need things now. Like We live in an instant culture, don't we? I mean, everything is happening so fast and we expect that. We want it now. We don't want to wait. Instant everything. We've got instant coffee. Ooh. Fast food, yum. Information at our fingertips instantly brought to us. Awesome. It's amazing. Like The the era that we live in is unprecedented. I mean, it's phenomenal. But what it's done is it's created this idea in our hearts that anything that takes time is bad. Anything that takes too long isn't worth it. But biblically speaking, true change takes time. Anything good is worth waiting for. I mean, do you see this in your kids? I do. As as a parent with young kids, they want things now, and and we're trying to instruct them that there is value and benefit to waiting. You know, the common phrase, don't sacrifice your future on the altar of today. It doesn't have to be instant, and if you live for instant pleasure, you sacrifice greater pleasure down the road, greater benefits down the road because of this mentality of we want everything now. How many of us live like that? requires great resolve because waiting is not easy. Eugene Peterson wrote a book, and the title of the book is fascinating. I love it. It's, it's called Discipleship, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love that, you see, because the Christian life, I and mean, we bring this instant mentality into the Christian life, and we believe that if change doesn't happen immediately, that then it's not worth waiting for, and so we blow out of there, and it's not worth it, and what God is saying is, listen, the Christian life is to be one that is constantly a long obedience, just consistency in our growth and development, all of this in the same direction. It's a helpful reminder, listen, that if you want to grow strong in the Lord and be useful in his service, it's going to take time. In fact, in his book, Eugene Peterson, he's got this great quote. Listen to this as it pertains to the Christian life. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Holiness. I think that is so bang on right. See, most Christians, they live in our culture of the instant. We we ride the waves of Christian highs, don't we? We ride the waves of Christian experience. And so we seek out an experience that we believe is going to just fill our sails with enough wind to move us a little further down in our walk with God. But then we drift and we end up drifting way out to sea. And we experience this roller coaster ride and a longing for the next experience when God says, I don't want you to live off experience. I want you to be steadily plodding forth in consistent and faithful obedience to me and my word. Do the things that I've called you to do and do them regularly, right? Don't neglect the ways that I've given you to grow, but stay at them. And over time, what you'll see is you'll move from here to here and the change will be so identifiable. The progress will be made known to all. Moses spent 40 years learning to think that he was someone. Then he spent 40 more years in the desert finding out who he really was and who God really was. By the way, that's the same desert where God would disciple Saul. And that was all done before he could have 40 years of actual fruitful ministry. Think about that. Jesus spent 18 years Studying the scriptures in his father's house, understanding and reading the scrolls, preparing for three years of ministry. The disciples spent their lives being trained up in the law, and the Torah, and they were discipled by Jesus for three years. And even, listen, after he gave them the commission to go to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ, he said, But wait, wait for my spirit. We must remember that preparation for service does not happen overnight. It takes time to brew good coffee. Can I get an amen? It takes time to make a good meal. It takes time to become an expert in a field of study. And listen, it it takes time to grow in spiritual maturity. The Lord is never in a hurry, even if we are. And while there is an urgency in the gospel, There is a patience required in preparing us to be most fruitful with the gospel. He is building us for eternity. Sometimes he has to bench us. (laughs) These times can be lonely and even painful, but they can also lead us to greater service. And so all here, look, he was prepared for effective service through the time that he, here's what you have to, what was he doing? I don't know all that he was doing, but I know this for sure. He was spending time alone with God. And if we want to serve God, we too must spend time alone with Him. We need to retreat regularly, often daily, to commune with God and be prepared by Him to accomplish His purposes for us. We need to commune with Him through His Word and through prayer. We need to have a resolve to steadily and patiently pursue Him. Urgency of mission should never eclipse patient preparation. That's a lot to get out of the in-between section of two verses, isn't it? But I think scripture really supports that in the life of Paul. So change is intentional. that requires resolve. Secondly, it requires refining. God has to do refining work in our lives to make us more effective in ministry. Look at verses 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I mean, we read this, and someone was like, wow, this is exciting. Is this what life in ministry is like? I hope not. I mean, all of a sudden, this guy's being launched out into ministry, and the first thing he encounters is that people want to kill him This is kind of like a scene, isn't it, out of a movie where the good guy is about to get caught and and, you know that the music is building, the anticipation is building, your heart starts racing, and he just narrowly escapes by some ludicrous plan. You guys getting let down through a window in a basket. Winston Churchill once said that nothing is so exhilarating as being shot at without result. I say, speak for yourself, Winston Churchill. The truth is, is that this experience was humiliating. I mean, look at, look at how Paul views this experience in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty 30-33. He actually talks about this experience. Look at this, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus who has blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, here's this period right here, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I mean, don't don't miss the context there. Paul is saying, I need to show you that I'm not gonna boast in my own strength and sufficiency. I wanna boast in my weakness, and let me tell you about a time that displayed my weakness in such a profound way. I had to run for my life and be let down by a bunch of men in a basket. And this is so counterintuitive to the way we think about success and how we would see success, success coming about in our lives. I mean, just, just can you just imagine this in the life of a, a freshly trained minister of the gospel? I mean, well, in our minds, we want to set somebody up for success, right? We want to put them in a position to succeed because we need some encouragement for them, and they need to be built up and excited and pumped up so that they're raring to go. And yet God sees fit to actually give this man an incredible, humiliating experience because he believes that that will better prepare this man for his future ministry you say why would God do this to Paul perhaps it's because instant success often produces self-promotion and self-sufficiency just think about it like this. I mean, how many of us have experienced instant success? You know, whatever we put our hand to turns to gold. We've got the Midas touch. And, and in doing that, we're inclined to begin to think we're something pretty special. I mean, wow, look, at, I'm pretty impressive. I mean, not everybody could just do that, you know. Like, I'm pretty gifted at what I'm doing. Even in ministry, the success of what God is doing can often be a temptation to say, wow, I mean, look what I've built. Look what I've done. Look how impressive I am. And maybe God in his grace was saying to Saul, I want you to begin your ministry knowing that you have nothing to boast in in and of yourself. Anything good that comes out of this ministry, Paul, is not because of you. It's because of me. And when you boast, you're not going to be able to boast that you were powerful enough, sufficient enough, adequate enough, nothing. All you'll be able to do is boast in your weakness because it's in your weakness that my strength is perfected. Listen, Christian, don't miss that lesson. Don't miss that God wants to break us down and he wants to shatter our pride. The Bible is so clear on this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God does not use the proud. He will not. He will not fight with you. In fact, he will oppose you. And so sometimes to break you, he will allow you to be humiliated and embarrassed and broken down so that you know who you truly are and you know where your success will ultimately come from. And that, just loved ones, listen to this. That is a gift of God's grace. Because not only does God oppose the proud, he gives grace to the humble. You want to experience more of God's grace? You just be humble, be humble. Never boast in yourself, only boast in what God is doing. And here, here is Saul being given a powerful display of his own weakness. I mean, how else could he write these words in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, he knew it because he had experienced it. How how desperately we need God to remind us of these things. Failing miserably has serious benefits. It's not the end of your life. It could be the very beginning of your ministry. It strips you of your pride. It reminds you of God's strength. Our humiliating failures can become marvelous preparation for greater service to God. Here's the caveat here. If we allow God to use them that way. We must be intentional in our response to the trials of our life and the testing of our faith. And if we respond with humility, God will bless that. Change is intentional. It requires resolve. It requires refining. And thirdly here, it requires relationships. I love this section. This is is so sweet. You'll notice Paul begins his Christian life not only uh, by experiencing rejection from the unbelieving world who want to kill him, but by experiencing rejection from the majority of believers. Look at verse 26 and following. It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, you can't fault them for this, right? You think about it. Even though it's been three years of not seeing him, they have no idea what's been going on. The last thing they heard was that this man was coming to grab them and throw them in prison and potentially kill them. I mean, you have to think that these believers are looking at Saul and going, maybe this is a trap, <laughs> yeah sure you've been saved this is a wolf wanting to creep in in sheep's clothing and he's gonna tear us apart and he's ultimately gonna destroy us in the end they're fearful But but God in his grace provides a friend a faithful friend an advocate for him someone to support him and encourage him we've heard this name before his name means son of encouragement so fitting so beautiful Barnabas And in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I mean, You've got to love Barnabas. Barnabas has seen Saul, and Barnabas takes a leap of faith, and he says, I believe God has changed this man. He's the real deal. Look, even believers who have seen the power of God at work in their own lives can doubt God's ability to change others. Not Barnabas. Barnabas believes that God has done a mighty work. I mean, he's seen it, he's experienced it, and now he comes alongside Saul and the, the, the language there in the Greek literally gives the picture as if he took him by the hand and he marched him into the assembly of the other believers and he said, this guy's genuine, he loves Jesus Christ, he's been saved by Jesus Christ, and he is boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. I mean, they're trying to kill him for this. This is no fraud. And the whole group of believers in Damascus is convinced and they welcome him in but make no mistake about it. God used Barnabas in such a powerful and significant way. Without Barnabas, there would be no ministry of Paul. Barnabas knew that aligning with Saul might cost him friendships and influence, but he was more concerned about serving a brother who he believed God had showered with his grace. The truth is that we cannot grow alone and we cannot serve alone, and I think that there are some helpful uh, lessons to be learned here. God in his grace has given us gospel friendships. He's given us ministry partners, people who love us, people who defend us, people who encourage us, people who support us. Some of the sweetest blessings in life are having friends in the Lord who love you and build you up and press into you and push you forward in the things of the Lord. It's been said that every believer needs a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. In other words, every believer needs a Paul, somebody over you in the Lord to disciple you and to invest in you. And every believer needs a Timothy, a a young protege in the faith, somebody you're pouring into and discipling. And every believer needs a Barnabas, somebody who's gonna walk with you in this Christian life, someone who's gonna put their arm around you, someone who's gonna love you through the good times and the bad, someone who's gonna pick you up when you're down, someone who's gonna pray for you when you need it, someone who's gonna practically care for you when you can't do it yourself. So let me ask you this morning, who's your Barnabas? Who is that person in your life that God has blessed you with? And if you don't have one, who are you praying for? You asking God to give you a Barnabas, an encourager, someone who loves you and can care for you? How about this? Let's, let's look at the other side of that coin. Who are you a Barnabas for? Who are you intentionally trying to come alongside and encourage and build up in the faith? And if you're not doing that, maybe this is the moment God's saying you need to change this in your life because I want you to be like this in the life of another believer And that's going to require you to take your eyes off of yourself and your own world and your own problems and to begin to listen to others and to love others and to serve others. It's going to require you to draw with the hearts of other people, to hear about the the troubles and the trials, to pray with them and to praise with them. The result of this is immense in the life and ministry of Saul. You see, this relaunches his ministry. Verses 28 and 30 tell us that, that he's brought in and he is sent out, all because he is embraced here. And here's what you need to see. There's, There's, again, there's time gaps here that Luke is not filling in for us, but Saul's public ministry will continue in Tarsus for another 10 years. It's amazing. Before he goes on a missionary journey, before he becomes the great Apostle Paul, he will spend ten years doing ministry in Tarsus. And what we need to see this is this, that change is not only radical, it not only is intentional, but it is essential. For the world to be reached, God needs to change us. And here in verse 31, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. It's such a beautiful summary of how God began and continued to change his people and grow the church. The church enjoys here a time of relative calm. They've moved out of a season of great persecution, and they're in a peace time. There are, by the grace of God, a periods of respite from serious opposition. And I want to suggest to you that we are living in a period of peace in our country, aren't we? When it comes to the things of the gospel, and it comes to the ability to hold the Christian faith. We are living in peace times, especially when you think of people in other places in the world where you get persecuted right now, you lose your life, you get imprisoned, you lose everything for following Christ. We have none of that. We have relative ease. God has allowed us by his grace to live in a time of peace. But what I want you to see here is this, that we've already looked at how persecution is a catalyst to gospel advancement, but I want to suggest to you that peacetime is equally so a catalyst to gospel advancement. In other words, peacetime was not party time for the Christians here. It wasn't like, oh, good, we've got a breath of fresh air. Let's kick our feet up. Let's relax for a little bit. Let's just re- you know, relax in terms of the mission of Jesus Christ. It's all good right now. We can just kind of take a breath. No, 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 no. It wasn't party time. It was proclamation time. They kept getting after it. The pedal wasn't let up. The pedal was pressed down. If there's freedom, let's take advantage of this time of peace. And there's a method in here for church growth, by the way. You see, we're not required to grow the church. In fact, I would suggest to you that the idea behind church growth, according to the Bible, is this. We don't grow the church. We grow believers. God grows the church but the requirement of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians chapter four. We build into believers so we see change in our lives. We see spiritual stability and strength and zeal being poured into the life of a believer. And here's what happens, right? Now the church begins to multiply because we are so strengthened and we are so built up that we walk out in the world and we begin to do the work of the ministry by declaring to the world that there is hope and life in Jesus Christ. Every one of us in here is only here because somebody took that seriously. Isn't that true? Somebody came to you. Somebody loved you enough to come alongside you. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a sibling, maybe it was a friend, I don't don't know who it was, but they came to you and they shared Jesus Christ. The church isn't growing. Listen, we can manufacture all the growth we want in the world, we we can throw a big party, we can make it attractional, and we can make this place so cool, hip, and trendy that people will wanna come in here, but that does not mean that the church is truly growing. Growth begins spiritually first, where the body of Christ is strengthened. Did you notice that there? Built up. That's spiritual. And through that spiritual building up, and you say, what does that look like? Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In other words, believers are faithfully leaning into God. They're fearing not man. They're not fearful of the reputation and what might happen to it. All they care about is the reputation of God, and they live to please Him and Him alone. They walk in faithful obedience to His Word. And as they do that, as they fear the Lord, All of their other fears dissipate because they experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Don't you love that parallel? Listen, when you walk in obedience to the the Lord God Almighty, according to his word, the comfort and the peace of the Spirit of God consumes your soul. And the result? Numerically, the church multiplies. Our job is to walk in the fear of the Lord, to follow him regardless of the cost, and to believe that as we continue to change, as he continues to change us, that he will continue to do the work of saving lost sinners. You know, one of the greatest emphasis in this last verse is this, that while we play a part, we are not to overlook, in fact, we are to focus on the role that God plays in this because the reality is that all true change in the Christian life is utterly impossible, but by the grace and the power of God. And when people change, churches change, and the world has changed. Saul realized that conversion and commission went together. He was saved to serve, but for his service to be effective, it required a commitment to change. Every one of us in this place needs a change. Not one of us can afford to stay the same as we are right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is God's desire for you, that you are taken from where you are and molded and shaped to who he wants you to be? Do you believe it's God's express design and purpose to save you, to transform you, and then to use you in this world? I hope you believe that this morning, but I want you to understand this as we close our time together. Our ability to change is dependent upon the Spirit of God primarily. But listen, the Spirit of God works when we are committed to letting God change us. Our willingness to change is everything. God calls us to be people who are surrendered to Him. And a Christian life is marked by change only when it is marked by a life of surrender. And I want to invite Mark and the worship team to come up here, and I've asked them to sing a song over us that really centers our thoughts on this idea of change and God's grace and power in changing us. But as he comes up here, I I want you, as he sings it over you, to listen to the words of this song and to allow them to sing deeply into your heart. But as you're doing that, listen, I want you to just think for a moment. Everybody, just pay attention for a second. Don't Don't put stuff away. Don't get caught up with the distractions around you. Just look here for a second. Every one of us has areas in our lives right now that God wants to change. For some of you, it's your position before him. And right now, you're standing as a stranger and an alien. You're an enemy of God. You're rebelling against him, and God is looking at you right now, and he's saying, today, this very day, I want to change your standing and position before me. And I want you to surrender your life right now. I want you to look to the cross and see that I came for you. I loved you enough to die in your place. I took all of your sin and I rose from the grave. I paid for your sin in full and I conquered sin and death and in me and me alone you can have life and have it everlasting. And I want to make that change in you, he's saying, but for me to do that you need to surrender yourself right here, right now. You to humbly admit, Lord, I've sinned against you. But today, this day, I'm falling on my face before you and I want, I want you to change me. Some of you I've been living a Christian life and you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you've even been baptized, but as you look at the before and after photo, what you see is this. You see there is no change. And in fact, not only are they not the same person, you are worse than when you were back here. And God is saying to you, maybe it's time you realize that you actually need me to change you. You have not been changed. And the evidence of your life And the lack of fruit of your life and that progressive transformation in your life isn't there. And what you need is today for me to come in and renovate your heart. You need a new heart, and I can do that right now as you surrender to me. But listen, if you're in Christ today, God wants to change you too. By his grace, he doesn't want to leave you where you are, right? That's amazing. God wants to take you. And by the way, the hope for us is this. He has the power to do it. And in his grace, he says, I want to take you. And I don't want to shape you and mold you, but you need to surrender. Right now, you can look at your life and you can see that there are areas of sin in your life. There are pursuits for pleasure in your life. There are things that you're living for that God is saying they have to change. They can be no more. Today is the day where you get right with me. Today is the, way, the day that you lay it all down before me. There is no more. It's time to make a change right now. God is saying, you need to come to me, and you need to be surrendered to me. Whatever that thing is, your pride, your stubbornness, your lust, your anger, your bitterness, whatever it is God is saying, just lay it down before me. Confess your sin to me. I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And God in his grace will take you, and he will begin that process, that slow and painful sometimes process of changing and refining you. Listen, here's the good news. For your ultimate good and joy, and for the great glory of his name. So I want to ask you as we bow in prayer to be thinking about what God is laying on your heart this morning. What needs to change. Father, we pray that by your spirit right now you would be working in a mighty way in our hearts. Every one of us, Lord, not one of us can afford to stay the same. God, our effectiveness is at stake. Your glory is at stake. And God, our joy is at stake. God, we want to be useful in your hands. Lord, I pray for every heart in here. Lord, that even is struggling with that concept, that thought of wanting to be useful, God, would you break their hearts, expose them to your great and glorious grace, remind them of how you ripped them out of the muck and mire of sin, how you saved them and produced within them a love for your awesome grace. God, we praise you that you delight in exposing our hearts by your grace, you apply the gospel and you take us and you change us, you mold us and you shape us. We pray, God, that you would do that even now for the glory and honor of your great name.